This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. Here in the United States, or at least in the Midwest and Great Lakes region, we have all heard the phrase, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. Well, it turns out it's both, a combination of the heat and the humidity that is proving to be very deadly, yes, deadly in this era of climate change, especially in places that are near the equator, along shorelines, and by nearby increasingly warmer oceans. Those areas include South and Southeast Asia, as well as places like Saudi Arabia. But that does not mean the U.S. is safe, as anywhere with high temperatures and high humidity can have what is known as the wet bulb effect, including Louisiana, Florida, and other places along the Gulf of Mexico. In the not-so-far-off future, as our guest today points out, this will put Arkansas, Missouri, and yes, even in places that many in the Midwest may think as safe, like Iowa, will be at risk. In a few minutes, we will discuss what is already a deadly impact of climate change with writer, freelance journalist, and Wired contributor Kamala Thiagarajan, who posted the Wired article, India isn't ready for a deadly combination of heat and humidity. The country's recent heat wave has seen wet bulb temperatures rise in potentially fatal levels, but plans to handle the crisis are still in their infancy. Kamala is based in Madurai, South India. Her writing delves into a wide range of issues, exploring science, environmental policy, health, human rights, and culture. She's been published in the New York Times, at NPR, The Guardian, British Medical Journal, Hakai Magazine, Al Jazeera, Bloomberg News, South China Morning Post, Atlas Obscura, National Geographic Traveler, Reader's Digest, BBC.com, The Diplomat of Australia, Morning Calm in South Korea, Christian Science Monitor, and at many other places. For over four years, Kamala wrote a column on health and well-being for one of India's leading national newspapers, The Hindu. She's written for the feature pages of various national dailies, including The New Indian Express, Times of India, and The Hindustan Times. You can read Kamala's articles on health and parenting at theswaddle.com, and you can follow Kamala on Twitter at Kamal underscore T. That's K-A- M-A-L underscore T. Find out more about Kamala at her website, kamala-thiagarajan.com. That's T-H-I-G-A-R-A-J-A-N.com. Kamala, according to her Twitter bio, is a coffee lover, idea chaser, and eternal optimist. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, considering, you know, this heat stuff. And again, yesterday, 100 degrees. The longest day of the year. The longest day <laughs> of the year. And it got actually up up, up by uh, Midway Airport. It got up to 101 degrees. We're lucky that we live a little bit nearer to the lake, so the temperature only got up to 99 it, it was very brutal. Do you have air conditioning? No, I don't. I don't. I had to get up it last night and shower in the middle of the night like <laughs> to cool myself down. How would you like a used air conditioner? I would like one, yeah. All right, then you're going to get a used air conditioner because we got a uh, somebody gave us a newer air conditioner and we have this old bulky one that 
uh, we just don't need anymore. So you're getting a new air conditioner. That's awesome. As long as I don't have to clean off like alley debris from it. No, no, that's good. There's no alley. I'm is, happy with it. This is not something we picked. It's something. <laughs> it's some somebody gave it to us at some point in the past, and yeah. So you're getting a new, getting a new used air conditioner. As for me, I'm currently freaking out right now. As tomorrow morning, I will be having a medical procedure in preparation for my upcoming surgery that will hopefully be my final surgery related to my chronic digestive disorder that forced me to have a life-saving emergency surgery back in March and kept me from doing the show for over two months. This procedure tomorrow means that I'm currently on a liquid diet and not the kind of liquid diet I prefer, which is a liquid diet of beer. But Lindsay, more important than me freaking out about tomorrow's medical procedure, please remind us, what is this qu- this week's question from hell? And share with us a couple of our uh, listeners' answers. Okay. Um, give me one second. It is something to do with a billboard. Yes, right? it is. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have it there. <laughs> I have to pull up Facebook still. Oh, Let's such see. a pain in now the ass. Have to scroll down, scroll down. Okay, what are you advertising <laughs> on the highway billboard just across the state line? And our last response, according to this notepad. <laughs> that somebody sent you? Uh, last answer. Trump Superstore? Yes. Uh, okay, now I have... Honestly, I have a really, really hard time with Facebook, so tell me if I'm reading the wrong ones. All right. Like, I don't, I, when I press newest, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> actually gives me the newest comments. So. Let's see. Trump Superstore. Where is it? There's, there's a lot of comments on here. Are you sure you don't want to just wait? <laughs> All right, let's just wait until after we talk to Kamala. Uh, again, uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever. This is how swag you want. This is how T-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask, the coffee mug, the this is how guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Remember, again, that we are so non-profit that we can't afford to be a not-for-profit so please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support or by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page facebook.com slash thisishellradio You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or you can email chuck at thisishell.com but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, as we do each and every week. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Kamala on uh, India's deadly heat and humidity. Again, the question from hell is, what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? You can email us, as I was saying, at chuckatthisishell.com, message us via Facebook, DM us via Twitter uh, with your guest and topic suggestions as well, or anything you'd like to share with us, and we'll likely read it on air. If we do have your suggested guest on the show, we will personally thank you during the conversation with your suggested guest. And we got an email from Spencer R., who writes to us saying, Hey, Chuck, 
Glad to hear you. You're back to kicking ass on the show lately. I've been listening for a while. My wife is a Patreon subscriber. I have a new story in The Intercept about a government corruption scandal exposed by a USDA whistleblower and a ton of FOIA documents involving the extermination of entire endangered wolf packs based on fake cattle predation data. It's been covered in many New Mexico and Arizona media outlets and radio stations, as well as republished in some other national outlets like High Country News. But I would love to get this story on your show. If you're interested, I could hit up the whistleblower as well. He's an old guy, but a badass, and he's got a great accent and an axe to grind. Spencer. So Spencer then sends us a link to his story. Cry Wolf, endangered Mexican gray wolf recovery, is being sabotaged by ranchers who claim the canines are killing cattle and the federal employees who sign off on reports. Spencer writes about the matriarch of the Prieto wolf pack that was snared in April of 2020. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services Division has already gunned down her mate and killed or captured eight of her heirs, according to Spencer's writing. Officials decided to remove alpha female number 1251 from the Gila National Forest in New Mexico due to her alleged taste for cattle. The next day, she was found dead. Extreme levels of stress hormones had turned her blood toxic, a phenomenon that biologists call capture myopathy. She would sooner die then live in a cage. The death of this endangered Mexican gray wolf completed the eradication of her pack, a vital bloodline in a critically low gene pool. In 2021, there were fewer than 200 Mexican gray wolves in the wild, the highest count ever taken in a recovery program whose gradual upward climb has been forcibly slowed. Wildlife Services justified the Prieto pack's destruction by citing livestock depredation reports, which showed that these wolves were prolific cow killers. Yet watchdogs and wolf biologists have long questioned the validity of this data. Now the former director of the agency has come forward to collaborate or corroborate their suspicions. Robert Goose Gosnell administered wildlife services in New Mexico for a year and a half as state director of the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, a job at which he says he inherited an entrenched and systemic corruption problem. Quote, I know some of those depredation reports that caused wolf removals were illegal, he told The Intercept, explaining that inspectors had been instructed by superiors to confirm livestock loss incidents as wolf kills for ranchers. He then goes on to say, my guys in the field were going and rubber stamping anything those people asked them to do. So thanks, Spencer, for contacting us. And do not be surprised if Spencer and or the whistleblower is on the show next week, because that is indeed a very, very hellish story coming up. Climate change is increasingly becoming more and more deadly in India. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at Patreon dot com slash this is hell we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell jeff dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth and we'll tell you what's happening on next week's show all that coming up here on this is hell the planet's on fire so yes this is hell 
a deadly effect of climate change that killed at least 90 people in India during a heat wave this past May and at least 2,500 more back in 2015. For many of us, that deadly effect may seem a world away, but in reality, its impact could be felt wherever you are in the very near future. Here to introduce us to what the future for many of us may hold when it comes to global heating, writer, freelance journalist, Wired contributor Kamala Thiagarajan posted the Wired article, India Isn't Ready for a Deadly Combination of Heat and Humidity. Welcome to This is Hell, Kamala. Hi, Chuck. It's great to have you on. The, yes, it's great to have you on the show. In your Twitter bio, as I was mentioning earlier, you say you are an eternal optimist considering climate change and what we'll be discussing <laughs> when it comes to wet bulb temperatures that rise to potentially fatal levels. How much optimism do you still have when it comes to global heating, especially when it comes to its impact on the people of India, where you are today? Well, I must say um, the climate change issue is really testing that optimism a lot. Um, I think that uh, in India, it's been a sweltering summer and um, we're, you know, possibly the ground zero of climate change. So it's been it's been very scary. So what's the temperature today where you are right now in India? The temperature today is like about 40 degrees um, and it's actually eased a bit. It's 40 degrees Celsius around, uh, what, what would that be in Fahrenheit? That's Probably. 105? Yeah, about 105. That's what I was going to guess, yeah. too. Uh, uh-huh. You start your article by writing, R. Lakshmanan uh, has been uh, making steel frames in the southern India city of Chennai for 20 years. His job involves standing for long hours outdoors at construction sites, pounding screws with careful precision onto steel rods. Each day he makes nearly 600 frames, which end up becoming the skeletons of a home. Often he works 12-hour shifts beginning at 6 a.m. He always feels fortunate when he gets to work under a shady tree, but this year that protection hasn't been enough. Ever since temperatures in March hit a sizzling 38 degrees Celsius, that's around 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, 4 degrees Celsius or 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit above normal for Chennai. The conditions have been stifling. The metal frames Lakshmanan works with have been too hot to touch. The steel burning his fingertips and leaving uh, behind painful sores. He's seen uh, construction workers, especially women, collapse around him and has had to take breaks during the workday to cope with fits of dizziness and nausea. You then quote him saying, on some days there's so much heat it feels like you're living in a fireball. Of all of the effects of global warming, one that may not be discussed as much as it should be is the impact of not only on outdoor workers, but outdoor labor more generally. How sustainable is this kind of work during climate change? What happens if outdoor work can no longer be done at the rate it is now? What, what would be the impact on an economy globally once it just gets too hot for outdoor workers? Um, I think it, the impact would be severe and debilitating, especially in India, because uh, we rely on outdoor workers for a lot of things. We have about uh, 7 million um, workers who are daily wage earners who work outdoors. And, um, you know, every, that includes agriculture, you know, farmers, um, people, uh, salt workers, uh, you know, people working in the construction industry. And as you know, we're a developing country, so we're very hungry for, for construction. And um, so, you know, this could uh, put a spoke in, in our wheel economically and could affect the 
was a great deal. But while a lot of people are focused on the economic issues related to climate change, I think the human impact is a very hidden story that not too many people pick up on. You know, there's a lot of suffering. Um, these aren't people that can afford to stop working just because it's too hot. You know, Lakshmanan is still out there in this heat and still working. And there's so many workers like him who feel like who don't, just don't understand the impact of the heat um, on their bodies. And um, they feel like they're embarrassed to complain. You know, so there's a there's a great deal of there's a hidden workforce in India that isn't really, um, you know, uh, that the government hasn't focused on enough um, or they don't have as much protection. You also point out towards the end of your article that for the steel worker, Lakshmanan, uh, the uh, heat remains an immediate problem. He can't afford to let it affect his concentration, he says. If he's off the mark by even half an inch while crafting his metal frames, all of the material he uses is wasted, and he's responsible. You even quote him saying that there are machines to do my job now, so I need to be alert regardless of the conditions I work in. But this summer especially, it's been really hard. It has tested the limits of our endurance. So uh, how easily can his job become automated? And do you think climate change will increase the pace of automation in places like India, which means less work for steel workers like Lakshmanan? Well, in terms of India, at least, it's not easy to automate everything because, you know, it becomes really expensive, costs will rise. So India relies on its huge and cheap labor force um, to keep things going. So I don't see uh, automation taking over all the jobs right away. But um, I do see a very, uh, you know, uh, especially salt workers whom I spoke with and workers in the construction industry like Lakshman going through a lot of hidden stress, a lot of uh, pain because of climate change. You know, the other day I just stepped out of my house and um, there's construction work going on next door. And there was a construction worker uh, in the middle of the day, this was around noon, and he had this, this thin layer of cardboard over his back. And that was the only thing that was protecting him from the sun. And I could barely stand on my balcony and look out because, you know, it was such a bright, hot day. And that's all he had to, to protect him, just a thin layer of cardboard, just like the stuff that you would get off of Amazon, right? Um, so it's, it's, a huge, it's a real problem, a huge immediate problem. And um, we're not ready to shift everything to, to machinery yet the rising cost would be debilitating. So I do feel that something has to be done for outdoor workers, like Lakshmi. And you also point out that when faced with these conditions, our bodies call upon a well-known mechanism to keep us from overheating, and that is sweating. As perspiration evaporates from the skin, it cools the body's temperature. But if the air is not only hot, but also already filled with moisture, less sweat can evaporate and this safety feature fails. In India, high temperatures and humidity are increasingly combining to pose a deadly threat, one the country isn't prepared for. Now, according to the World Population Review, the most humid places in the world are located near the equator and the coast. Generally, the most humid cities are in South and Southeast Asia. Sakur, uh, Pakistan is one of the most humid cities globally. Cities such as Kuala Lumpur, Jakarta, and Singapore have very high humidity year-round because of their proximity to the equator. 
and water is the heat and humidity that is being experienced in India, where you are today, and throughout South and Southeast Asia. Is that the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the world? Is it an indicator for what the rest of the world will experience? Or is this heat severity going to be limited to places close to the equator? Because there may be people listening right now who feel safe from this kind of impact from climate change as they don't live near a warming body of water or near the equator. Well, a lot of India's impact is because of the Indian Ocean that is rapidly warming. Um, But it's also because uh, climate change in general is causing a lot of dry heat. And with every one degree rise in temperature, uh, the experts I spoke to told me that we have like about a 7% rise in humidity as well. And um, so a lot of places around the world are going to see more fatal wet cold temperatures. It's not just the areas near the coast, but the areas near the coast are especially at risk now as we're, as we're seeing. So, you know, a lot of coastal India or southern India where I live is seeing like a rising wet cold temperatures. And this summer in particular has been really uh, devastating for that. But, um, but the experts I spoke to were very clear that this is something that, you know, a lot of places around the world are going to see in the future. So we're going to, as with every degree of global warming, if we can't contain emissions, we are going to look at, um, you know, rising humidity levels as well. And that's going to affect us in many different ways. So for those who do not know, and I think that there are probably a lot of people in our listening audience right now who do not know, Uh, Can you please explain what is wet bulb temperature? So wet bulb temperatures, we do know that a thermometer measures dry heat. But if you were to, you know, uh, if you were to put a wet cloth over the computer and then measure its temperature, um, that would effectively be the wet bulb temperature. It's a measure of both heat and humidity. So if the air is saturated with water, um, you know, if we, we have a lot of uh, cloud cover um, and we ha- and it's also very hot. So it's, it's a combined effect of heat and humidity. And then in, in those areas, the wet bulb temperature kind of rises. And the wet bulb temperatures are always um, deceptively lower than dry heat. So dry heat in India this summer during this heat wave, I think it went all the way up to 46 degrees in northern India. It's about um, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but in southern India, the temperatures weren't that high, but our wet belt temperatures were really, really high because a lot of it was because of the Indian Ocean, um, warming as it is. And so uh, our heat was like a mixture of sticky heat and humidity. And it's like, it, 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 I just tell you what it feels like. It feels like the heat is like a tangible presence. It's like everywhere. It's the first thing you think about when you step out, you know, when you step out of an air conditioned room or out of a climate controlled area. It's it's like this invisible cloak that wraps itself around you. And, uh, you know, it kind of gets heavier by the minute um, as the day wears on. And, uh, you know, so it's it's been it's been really hard to contend with. So definitely a wet bulb temperature is is far harder to deal with than just dry heat. As you write, essentially, the bulb is you or me. The wet cloth is our sweating skin, and the temperature recorded is the coolest we can hope to get by sweating. You also point out that on May 1st, 2022, the wet bulb temperature 
uh, in the steelworker Lakshmanan's home city of Chennai hit 31 degrees Celsius the same day a district of Amakulam in the Indian state of Kerala recorded a wet bulb temperature of 34.6 degrees Celsius, a record high for the area. So how big of a story is the impact of climate change in India? Because here in the United States, we may discuss record temperatures, but their connection to climate change is rarely, if ever, mentioned, especially on establishment TV news stations or on local TV news reports. Last night, I was watching what the weather forecast was, what the weather was yesterday, and the weather forecast is today. We set a record for 101 degrees here in Chicago, and today we might be setting another uh, hot temperature record here in uh, Chicago. So, but at no point do any of the meteorologists you see on TV or is any of the discussion about climate change. So how big of a story is the impact of climate change on India? Is it discussed more than it is here in the States? Well, it's very unusual because India acknowledges climate change. Um, we have this in all our official um, you know, documents. Um, we're kind of studying the changes. And yet it's not that big a story because not much is being done about it. You know, uh, not much is being done outside of certain cities like in Gujarat, which experienced a huge heat wave um, in the state of Gujarat in northern India. So it's in western India. Sorry. So it, in, they experienced a huge heat wave in 2015. So they're far more prepared to deal with um, the heat than, say, other states, you know, across India. Um, so and because it's this hidden um effect, uh, we really don't uh, have that preparedness yet to deal with it. And we'll get to that preparedness or lack of preparedness in a little bit, but is climate change uh, increasingly becoming a subject of political debate in India? It is increasingly becoming a subject of of debate in environmental circles. Uh, We have activists trying to you know, get the government's attention about it. But I still feel that um, there isn't enough being done or it, it isn't um, it isn't the focus of our political debates yet, sadly enough. And you quote Vidya Venugopal, a researcher in public health at the Sri Ramachandra Institute of Higher Education and Research in Chennai, saying, without the mechanism to rid the body of that excessive heat, there are many physiological changes that happen in quick succession. So uh, to what extent extent is climate change in India a, a public health concern? Because, again, here in the state, climate change seems to be more about rising sea levels and increased severity of storms. So in India, when there is a discussion of climate change, is it more centered on a public health debate? Um it is a huge uh, public health concern in India, but I don't think that it has gotten the attention that it deserves yet. Um, but what we are looking at in India is extreme weather events. For instance, right now we have a lot of, uh, we have almost 2 million people in Assam um, who have been displaced because of a, a, a flooding. Um, and that's Northeastern India. And, uh, you know, so we're seeing um, a lot of, uh, displacement because of climate change, a lot of extreme weather events, and um, an increasing number of them. So I think that um, we can hardly avoid uh, the politics of it anymore. I think that uh, policymakers have to focus on climate change in the years ahead um, because it's becoming this this uh, growing presence, and it's becoming a very disruptive 
um, issue right now that we're looking at. So uh, I think that in the years ahead, it will become a huge focus, a focal point of debate. One of the more frightening parts of your story is the way our body uh, reacts or doesn't react when it is overheating. You write that blood vessels dilate and circulation slows, particularly to the extremities. Not enough Mm -hmm. blood will flow to the brain, affecting its functioning. You lose alertness, become drowsy, and don't feel thirst anymore. Soon, organs shut down one by one. You then quote the researcher Venugopal, also telling you that when the brain stops giving messages to the heart, the pulse slows, and the person goes into a coma. So can we not trust our own body when it's overheating, when it's so hot outside from wet bulb temperatures? Is that one of the greatest dangers to an individual when it comes to excessive heat, that your body is no longer sending your brain the appropriate information to combat heat, that your body can no longer be trusted? Is that one of the greatest dangers that we face with climate change and rising temperatures, especially wet bulb temperatures? Absolutely. I think that uh, those signals are really important because they keep us alive. You know, when we feel thirst and we drink water, that cools us down internally. But if we lose the ability to, uh, you know, for, for our bodies to tell us that, that we need to cool down, um, and especially in the conditions where we have a lot of, like, you know, uh, laborers who are working outdoors in this weather um, and who don't often get breaks or frequent or inadequate breaks. So, you know, in these conditions, it's just a, it's just a huge health hazard because uh, we're, just, we're just ignoring um, all of the signs that tell us that we need to stop and we need to slow down and rest. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's becoming a huge uh, issue in terms of, uh, of, of wet bulb temperatures. Is, it's like, it's really, uh, it's difficult to understand when we have to stop. So I think that's the biggest danger of, of wet belt temperatures over dry heat. We dry heat, we know when we can stop. But wet belt temperatures just cause us to keep going and then until we collapse. So I think that's really, really scary. That's very scary, especially for those who do not have shelter. And we'll be getting to that in a little bit. You write that world weather attribution and international collaboration that analyzes extreme weather events estimates that India and Pakistan's recent heat wave in May led to at least 90 deaths across both countries. During uh, India's 2015 heat wave, as I mentioned earlier, wet bulb temperatures in the southern state of Andhra Pradesh uh, rose to 32 degrees Celsius. That's around 95 degrees Fahrenheit. That year, uh, the heat killed over 2,500 people. Did India's or Pakistan's governments take any steps to make certain the public was aware of the deadly dangers from heat plus humidity? Was there any kind of information campaign to make certain that people knew how dangerous their lives had become with wet bulb temperatures? Yes, I think from 2013, India has had this expanding uh, heat action plan in place. Um, And there are efforts to educate the public about the adverse effects of heat, because in a country that's so used to, you know, dealing with hot, uh, harsh summers, it's hard to get people to take this seriously. So um, that's what we're looking at right now. And that's the, you know, that's the problem that we're contending with. How do you get people to take the heat seriously because you know if you don't you're considered like if you complain about the heat you're you know you're considered a little wimpy you know (laughs) if you don't complain about the heat in a country that's always had these harsh summers it's hard so um 
we have um, our work, I, I think the authorities have their work cut out for them in terms of, of educating people about the, uh, the effects of the um, but yes, uh, there are uh, efforts to do that right now. Um, and there are nationwide efforts to, uh, to forecast uh, wet bulb temperatures as well as um, dry heat. Right now, we haven't forecast too many wet bulb temperatures, um, but dry heat is always uh, an early forecast. So we do know that when there is a heat wave coming on, um, and I think that the experts I spoke to pointed out that we have to, in the years ahead, also alert people when humidity levels rise, you know, say above 60%, so that they are prepared to deal with that as well. And you also point out that such wet bowl events are going to become increasingly common as climate change warms the world. What magnifies the problem is that as temperatures rise, so does the absolute humidity in the atmosphere, says Jane Baldwin, assistant professor in the Department of Earth System Sciences at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks to what's known as the Clausius-Clapeyron relationship of thermodynamics, as Baldwin tells you, quote, for every one degree increase in temperature, you see a 7% increase in humidity. And you add it means that for countries like India, climate change has a compounding impact. The effect is strongest over the world's oceans, and particularly the Indian Ocean, whose rapid warming is a big trigger of South Asia's high wet bulb temperatures. Why is the Indian Ocean warming faster than other oceans? What, what factors lead to the Indian Ocean warming faster? Well, um, usually warming over oceans is uh, something that we've been contending with for a long time. Um, the factors that lead to a, a, just the dry heat, the increase in heat is leading to uh, a warming Indian Ocean. That's just uh, the dry heat is also compounding the, uh, the effect, the humidity of the Indian Ocean. So in your opinion, is the global north or the west, whatever you want to call it, not reacting as quickly to climate change as it should because it's simply just not experiencing climate change the way that places in South Asia like India and Pakistan are experiencing global heating? Or is the global north and the global west ignoring or delaying their reaction or response to climate change simply because it's not experiencing it the way that South Asia is experiencing it right now? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, uh, because we're in the tropics, we tend to experience climate change far more intensely. Um, we tend to experience it far more viscerally than most other places. Um, and I think that the global West uh, is a lot more cooler. And so even if you do have a heat wave, it doesn't last long or it doesn't make as much of an impact as it would in the tropics. Um, because a heat wave here on top of the already existing hot conditions can be very dangerous for us right now. But um, because the world isn't seeing that danger equally or experiencing that in the same way, I think that um, a lot of policy is around climate change as well. We are speaking with writer, freelance journalist, and Wired contributor Kamala Thiagarajan, 
who uh, posted the Wired article, India isn't ready for a deadly combination of heat and humidity. This country's recent heat wave has seen wet bulb temperatures rise to potentially fatal levels, but plans to handle the crisis are still in their infancy. So let's talk about those plans for a moment. You write that in response, the Indian government has had an expanding heat action plan in place since 2013. Its biggest feature is an early war- a warming, or sorry, warning system for forecasting heat waves in cities across the country, as you were mentioning earlier. But beyond this, safeguards for people vary significantly across the country. So to you, what explains why these more long-term plans have yet to be properly Im- implemented? Well, I think that, again, um, policymakers aren't taking heat seriously um, and they aren't looking at uh, the impact of climate change on a human level um, and how it affects people who are working outdoors or people who don't have any other choice. Um, so I think that uh, since a lot of this is invisible, uh, it's, it's really affecting and you, you mentioned that one additional proposal is the idea of the cooling room, an air-conditioned space in a hospital where people with heat exhaustion can recover. But there are no significant coordinated nationwide efforts yet to help vulnerable low-income workers access these. Just yesterday here in Chicago, uh, there was a city council meeting talking about the ways in which we are going to be dealing with heat here. There's a senior uh, residence, uh, senior uh, housing residence, here in the Rogers Park neighborhood, the neighborhood that we are next to, we're in West Ridge, that's in the Rogers Park neighborhood, and uh, three people died during because uh, the heat was not turned off during a recent surge of heat here in Chicago. So one of the proposals is that they're going to have a cooling room on the bottom floor of these high-rises, but you're talking about senior citizens who might live on a 10th or 15th floor, and they're going to have to abandon their apartment and go down to the main floor to sit in a cooling room with a whole bunch of other people, which is not really all that practical. When it comes to helping those who are suffering from the impact of climate change, is there any kind of, well, classism? Because as you write, there are no significant coordinated national efforts yet to help vulnerable low-income workers access these. Uh, is, Is there any kind of suffering from the impact of climate change because of any sort of classism in India? There's a great deal of classism in India, especially with regard to climate change. If you're rich, you can afford air conditioning and um, you can get away from the worst of the summer in these climate controlled environments. But if you're poor, you just can't afford it. And you have to work in exhausting um, you know, temperatures and you don't have a choice. You don't have um, adequate breaks to cool down. You don't have um, access to water. Um, so there's, there's a huge, uh, a great deal of classism, which I feel like that's why it hasn't been addressed enough politically. Um, it's not something that affects everyone equally. And only about 8% of Indian households, only 8% have air conditioning. So um, yes, there's a great deal of classism when it comes to discussing climate change. You're right. It's also rare for employers to provide any kind of health insurance specifically for heat stress or to institute emergency care in case of heat stroke, especially in the unorganized labor sector, which contains over 700 million workers in India. Currently, is there any debate in India over the ways in which health insurance should address uh, climate change? And is that debate being acted upon yet? Um, No, there's no specific debate over, uh, uh, you know, climate change induced effects. Uh, 
um, you know, we, we're trying to organize health insurance uh, for a lot of vulnerable people right now, but even that is hard um, to get everyone access to health insurance. Um, we have nationwide schemes that are in place, but um, it still doesn't cover all conditions. Um, there are still many loopholes uh, and we're still trying to deal with that basic system. So uh, we don't have anything um, for the impact of heat. And as you know, some of the experts I spoke to pointed out, the impact of heat is often like, it's, it's not really visible. Sometimes a death isn't reported as a heat death when heat could have triggered the condition that caused the death. It could be because someone has a secondary condition like diabetes, or it could be because they have, um, you know, uh, they, they, uh, they had a heart attack that was triggered by heat or a stroke um, because of the high heat conditions. But often heat isn't listed as the cause of death. It's, it's always a secondary condition. So it's always tricky to arrange insurance um, in these situations. And this is something that, um, that policymakers do need to pay attention to in the future because uh, we often don't regard how heat affects us directly. Do you believe climate change can have an impact on India's unorganized labor sector? Could global heating lead to more labor organizing in India, maybe even more labor rights and safer workplaces? Well, there are experts working on that now um, and you know, trying to inform government policy about how we can um, bring healthy industrial practices uh, to this unorganized sector. But it's very hard because we're talking about a huge number of laborers and um, all, a lot of them are migrant laborers. A lot of them ha are daily wage earners, which means they get paid every day at the end of their workday. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge unorganized sector that, um, and there are a lot of like, uh, the reason why these workers are, are given jobs are because because they're a huge source of cheap labor. So uh, once we start, once the government starts organizing that and starts, um, you know, putting in, um, you know, uh, pay parity and, you know, a lot of issues, correcting a lot of issues that should be corrected, I think um, they should look at climate change as well and um, see how to protect themselves from the heat. Because like I said, um, there is no protective equipment. Um, so no one is given anything um, and no one even understands the effects that heat has on their bodies. So it's a, it's a huge problem, but uh, not one that can be dealt with easily or in a day. You write that the challenge lies in getting buy-in access and uh, I mean, buying across uh, India's many cottage and small-scale industries until the government adopts stringent mandates requiring employers to protect their staff from extreme heat. Individual businesses can choose whether to adopt or ignore suggestions coming from advisors like Venu Gopal, who we are quoting, you were quoting earlier. Uh, many of those cottage and small-scale industries are individuals now working in their homes, especially that number has increased since the pandemic began. How much more difficult and costly does that make it for the government to address workplace conditions in India, especially in light of increased warm, global warming? Does that work at, within the home make it even more difficult to protect workers from global heating? Oh, it absolutely does. And um, also, we're also discussing the kind of materials that we're using to build these homes. So a lot of uh, in, uh, homes in low-income um, housing in India is built with asbestos, you know, and um, 
that really heats up uh, during the summer times, um, much less during the heat wave. So I spoke to an academic um, recently, uh, a researcher who was going into these homes, low-income communities in, in the state of Gujarat, and they were measuring the temperatures, the indoor temperatures. They found that the temperatures in most homes were about 52 degrees centigrade, um, which, is, which is crazy really hard conditions to work in. And so I think the government would have its work cut out for them um, if they were to address this. It would be almost impossible, but working in indoor conditions um, helps a lot of people because they don't, they save money on costs. Um, and a lot of them are like, like I said, cottage workers, self-employed. A lot of them are working for other people. So, and um we're at least trying to phase out the asbestos in low-income housing um, so that the temperatures don't go uh, that high. But right now, um, if you have a, an asbestos roof or a tin roof, if your temperature inside your house could be about 125 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, you know, a lot of the workers collapse or can't work inside their homes at that point. They have to come out to do their work. Is the low-wage labor that many multinationals depend upon in places like India and Pakistan, uh, in, in the face of climate change, is that kind of low-wage labor sustainable? Can that kind of low-wage labor continue? Um, I don't know if multinationals depend on um, the low-wage labor, but I think a lot of Indian companies that do exports do depend on it. And um, you're right, it can make Indian companies very, uh, it can make them less competitive in the market, in the global market. Um, it can certainly um, impact the economy in, in a major way. So um, I, I doubt whether they can do without that. You also quote Stephen Sherwood, a professor at the University of New South Wales in Australia at the Climate Change Research Center, stating that when the humidity rises, the temperature doesn't drop quite so fast at night. When humidity is higher, there is greater cloud cover, which acts like a blanket preventing the escape of heat. Many might think that less sunlight means less harmful heat. Is that one of the most misunderstood effects of climate change and rising temperatures? Is this a hidden effect, if you will, of climate change that people may not realize? Yes, I was really surprised uh, to hear about it myself. Um, it's just that I thought that nighttime is a time when the body recovers from the heat of the day. And, you know, a, a lot of experts say that in India, what's happening right now is that there are high nighttime temperatures because of this cloud cover, because all of this, this radiation is trapped right uh, here. And so, you know, it's harder for us to recover um, from the heat of the day, even at night, because there are such high temperatures even in the night. So I think it definitely is this, this hidden um, effect, ill effect of heat. Ambarish Dutta, a professor of epidemiology at the Indian Institute of Public Health in Bhubaneswar, he tells you that if heat if uh, heat stays high in the night, it affects the body's homeostasis, its ability to regulate and maintain its internal body temperatures. And you add that 
upset this uh, and your cellular metabolic uh, activities become disrupted, which can be a driver of disease and can even be fatal itself. This is a big concern, as you were pointing out earlier, given that only an estimated 8% of Indian households have access to air conditioning. So as we are already in a global pandemic, what types of disease can be driven by metabolic activities becoming disrupted, especially in places like India, which have had a huge impact from COVID-19? Well, it can lower your immunity a great deal. Um, It can make you vulnerable to a lot of uh, bacterial infections and viral infections. You know, um, as the humidity in the air increases, uh, viruses and uh, bacteria thrive. So it's just, uh, in general, it can make you um, very prone to these infections. Um, but also, uh, the, the effect of a wet bulb temperature is that it interferes with our mechanism to sweat, you know, our sweating mechanism, the body's natural way to regulate the heat. And I think that um, that, that researchers say that, you know, after a certain degree, the continuous exposure to wet bulb temperatures can be fatal. So uh, we're looking at temperatures from 35 degrees, 32 to 35 degrees Celsius. It's about 95 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And you mentioned analysis by World Weather Attribution suggests that climate change has made deadly weather events in South Asia 30 times more likely than they used to be. In the pre-industrial age, uh, extreme heat waves would crop up once every 3,000 years. Now the probability is once every 100 years. Across India, an average nine heat waves were recorded every year from 1980 to 1999. The average between 2000 and 2019 is almost triple that at 23. So is climate change becoming an issue not only of public health in India, but is it being seen as a threat to national security or economic stability for India? It's definitely being viewed as a threat to economic stability now. Um, I'm not sure about national security, but I think that um, we are waking up to how um, how big a public health hazard it is. But I still think there needs to be more widespread awareness because um, a lot of heat deaths aren't reported. A lot of them um, aren't uh, categorized as heat deaths. So unless these deaths are reported accurately, we would never know the scope of the problem. And you mentioned that South Asia is also not the only area at risk. Potentially fatal mixtures of heat and humidity have been increasing around the globe. Coastal cities on the Persian Gulf seem particularly susceptible to very high wet bulb temperatures in the future, says Luke Harrington, senior research fellow in climate science at the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute. According to data from NASA, other countries will experience more critical wet bulb temperatures in the future, too, including the United States. States such as, as I was mentioning earlier, Arkansas, Missouri, and even Iowa are at risk. And while some places may have more resources to handle the issue, people outside of India might not be so adapted to cope. Why is that the case? Why might people outside India not be as adapted to quote uh, to cope with a very high wet bulb temperatures, despite potentially having more accesses that more access to resources that would help them cope? Well, we in India, we're used to dealing with heat. You know, we have these really harsh summers that we've gotten through. Um, And even for us, this heat wave is challenging, Um, even for a body that is used to coping with heat for over all of these years. So um, or is genetically inclined to to cope. 
Um, but, you know, in the West where temperatures are, you know, relatively cooler or milder the whole year through, and then you have cold winters and you have, you know, um, you don't deal with such harsh summers on a normal basis. So I think that um, for people there, a heat wave like this would be very hard to cope with because heat is very relative. It's, it's very relative to you and um, to your body and how it adapts. So how important is India's reaction to climate change to the rest of the world? Is India the planet's laboratory, if you will, when it comes to responding to climate change? Should the world even assist India so it can better address and understand how to deal with global warming everywhere? I hope that um, the world will keep an eye on what's happening in India right now and um, would be noticing the, the difference in, and how it's um, it's dealing with it. But I think more importantly, it should be a lesson um, to you know countries everywhere that climate and heat is a real threat. And um, it's something that has to be addressed immediately, um, especially in terms of protecting a vulnerable population. So how much is the current Modi government pushing for global action when it does come to climate change? Is the Modi government possibly a leader in the world in pushing for a global reaction to climate change? Ah, that's a good one. Um, I'm not quite sure how much uh, we are pushing for climate change uh, or how much that is just, um, you know, uh, on paper. Uh, right now, I think it's important to to look at um, our own country's needs first. And uh, we have a huge vulnerable population that is being exposed to climate change right now. Um, the other problem with the Modi government is that uh, we are, as, with India especially, is that we are very reliant on coal. And um, it's going to take a while to phase this out, and it's not going to be easy. Um, and so the Modi government is saying that they are committed to, um, to change um, and to, to addressing the issues that arise from climate change. But uh, there are a lot of issues to address from Delhi's pollution to um, the, these extreme heat waves that are coming out of India. So I think we need more sustained measures. One last question for you, Kamala. We have been speaking with writer, freelance journalist, and Wired contributor Kamala Thiagarajan, a, uh, who posted the Wired article, India isn't ready for a deadly combination of heat and humidity. You can follow Kamala on Twitter at K-A-M-A-L underscore T and find out more about Kamala at her website, kamala-thiagarajan.com. One last question for you, Kamala. And as we do with all of our guests I promise. Uh, it's the question from hell. The question that we ask that you may hate to answer, that our audience may hate your response. We hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience may hate your response. Uh, is climate change not only more deadly in India because of the higher temperatures and humidity and the relative warming of the Indian Ocean, but also the caste system? Does the caste system make climate change in India increasingly deadly and difficult to address? And is that caste system sustainable during climate change? Um, the caste system in India is a huge problem that India has been dealing with for generations. Um, yes, I think that, uh, that people who are working or who are in uh, considered of a lower caste experience um, all of the impacts 
climate change um, with very little protection, um, with very little support. I think these communities are often ignored and often bypassed by policymakers. Um, and I do think that uh, that just having a caste system itself um, has been detrimental in India uh, in many ways. So uh, unless governments wake up to the most vulnerable of our population, it's not going to go away. It's not an issue that's going to be easy to handle at all. And um, as far as caste is concerned, yes, we've had some, some major issues uh, with it, including um, public health issues, how to get people with, uh, from lower castes into a system, um, how to get them treated, how to get them you know, um, medicine, education, how to get them societal acceptance. Um, so we've, we've been grappling with that in every area, in fact. So why should climate change be any different? It is definitely an issue that we need to deal with. Kamala, thank you so much for being on our show today. And I'm so glad that we got to talk to you about this issue, uh, something that is not being discussed here in the United States as much as it should when it comes to climate change and especially how it's impacting people in areas like Southeast and South Asia. I truly appreciate you being on the show with us today. Thank you so much. And enjoy thank you. Your- Thanks so much. Sure. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. Please prove us wrong. This is hell if what you just heard from Kamala Theogarajan on India's deadly wet bulb temperatures that will soon be coming to, well, wherever you live. If that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listeners supported this is hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what are you advertising on the big highway billboard just across the state border? (laughs) I bet you get some good ones in Arizona. Uh... I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember any right now. Uh, let me think about there's it. There's a lot of them uh, in Southwest Michigan. There's a lot referring to God. There's a lot of God billboards. Yeah, in Southwest there's Michigan. really not as much in Arizona. Like I remember driving. I driven from Arizona to Chicago and the God billboards didn't really hit until Kansas like that <laughs> bet, was where they all were I bet so. they're pretty thick in Kansas too. <laughs> yeah so I guess I'll start with the well there were a couple of email responses should uh-huh. I start with those sure let's see another question from hell from at Yehoke is that how Uh, We'll start with the long one. What are they advertising on their billboard just over the state line? It's the last in a series of increasingly racist billboards that stretch along 100 miles in either direction, leading you to a depressing parking lot of cinder block shops selling cheap plastic tchotchkes staffed by bored, depressed teens who want to be anywhere but the dystopia created by their parents' generation. (laughs) We're selling the American dream, but there's mini golf and ice cream. 
This is a reference to South of the Border. Look it up. Which I didn't look it up, so <laughs> I'm I wanna, sorry. I have heard of that. I've heard of South of the Border, and I went, I, I've only heard of it, I, but I definitely want to look it up. And unfortunately, that's also the name of a restaurant in the Rogers Park neighborhood, and I don't know if they know what that reference is. So. Is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Probably not a good thing. I know this is North of the Border, but it reminds <laughs> me there's an abandoned, like, amusement park between phoenix and tucson that that reminds me of (laughs) (laughs) so there's another question from hell in my email let's see question from hell email so this is from mike the gigarouch yeah i don't know yeah something like that what's on your big billboard just across the state border it says be thankful it's not Missouri. <laughs> Slam on Missouri for some reason. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> Any more, or do you want to wait until after Jeffy? Uh, we, we could do the rest on Facebook if you want to give me one second to pull it up again because I closed it. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go to Jeffy, and then we'll uh, share the rest of the okay, answers to the I'm question. I'm admitting him to our Zoom meeting right now. Sweet. Sorry, Jeff. The person with our <laughs> okay. favorite answer to this He's week's Jeff. question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, again, you can subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell on Friday's Patreon. We are going back up north to small town Michigan and the pages of the weekly newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter, which this week published a letter from a local resident in the Your Opinion section of the editorial page bashing Chicago based on sensationalized reporting by the far right media here in the States. So if you're wondering why I always talk about the Houghton Lake Resorter, it's because, well, two reasons. One, it's a small town newspaper that I had uh, got a gift subscription to over the holidays and two, it's where I go every year for my annual family summer vacation. Now the letter was so misleading and inaccurate about the city where I've been living since 1987 that it actually has led me to write a letter to the Your Opinion section a letter of my own, and and I will be sharing that letter and a longer discussion of what is wrong with the far right's characterization of Chicago and how a similar characterization of small-town America would be equally misleading and inflammatory. Also on Patreon, we will be sharing another classic interview we unearthed from our archives that is currently not available online. And if you subscribe to our Patreon podcast, you not only get a new monologue from me each week and a new classic uh, interview, but you get access to all of our past Patreon podcasts with monologues and uh, uh, interviews that are not available anywhere else online. And that's like around 200 of those interviews and monologues right now. Uh, So we're going to be sharing a conversation we had way back on July 23rd, 2006, when we spoke with Gara LaMarche then Vice President and Director of United States Programs at the Open Society Institute and a regular contributor to opendemocracy.net. Gara had just posted 
on June 29th, only five days before the 4th of July he, in 2006, uh, he had just posted the article, The Crisis of Democracy in America, in which Gara argues that the pillars of American democracy, the open society, the culture of law, free media, independent science and academia are under assault from the radical right. Again, this is back in 2006. And a serious coordinated response is needed, founded on robust and honest debate, according to Gara. Yes, way back in 2006, our guests were already warning us about the rise of the radical right. Back then, Gara also wrote that my mounting concern is with the damage done in the U.S. to independent and oppositional institutions. We are closer now to ideologically driven one-party rule in the U.S. than ever before, and its hand-in-glove partnership with the most reactionary, intolerant media and religious forces uh, creates something resembling theocracy. While today many mainstream, this is just me adding to that, while today many mainstream establishment media outlets may be finally noticing the rise of Christian nationalism in the United States, Gara was telling us here on This Is Hell about the threat of theocracy and Christian nationalism 17 years ago. This week's Patreon interview is part of a series of conversations that we are sharing leading up to the 4th of July, uh, conversations that are not so patriotic, uh, classic interviews that were featured here on This Is Hell back in the day that might be seen by those establishment media outlets as, well, un-American. And uh, you can now find all of them. They'll be available on Patreon. If you do subscribe to our Patreon podcast again, you get access to hundreds of monologues and interviews that are unavailable anywhere else online. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live again this week on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and its podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. And please subscribe because we really want to continue paying the crew a living wage. We cannot do that without your support. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we will be announcing this week's winner. We're also going to be telling you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. And, uh, Lindsay, in case you're wondering why you haven't got a list of next week's guests, it's because we don't have any guests booked for next week. But I'll be explaining that in just a moment. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. Super truth for the ultra-believer. Are there any real mysteries left? Clearly we're not the doe-eyed, innocent public we once were, back when Howdy Doody and Alka-Seltzer ruled the popular infotamosphere. It's not enough for things to be true anymore. Now they must pass a more rigorous test, the test of believability in the -the state-of-the-art laboratory of public opinion, and yet somehow there still remain unsolved phenomena to boggle the jaded mind, shake us out of our trances, and remind us never to trust our senses, our reason, our memory, or the evidence. We live in a truly miraculous time when anything can be true, but only the best things can be super true. The Barbed Wire of Eden. One Sunday morning, archaeologist 
Trudy Brasnockel, working overtime on a dig in the mountains of Afghanistan, found her garden trowel's tip wedged immovably between a rock and a hard thing embedded in the Afghan clay. The trowel stuck out of the earth at a thirty-three and a third degree angle. She put all the weight she could bring to bear upon it by standing on the handle with one foot. The trowel handle bent all the way to the ground before she released it with a spring sound. She tried again. Spring. She did it a few more times because she enjoyed hearing the sound. Then the handle of the trowel broke off. She tried next with a pry bar and eventually removed the stubborn artifact from the clay. What she saw turned out to be confirmation of a very old, obscure legend. A book of early apocrypha, The Shawarmas of Enochle, tells of a garden recognizable as the selfsame Garden of Eden from the Old Testament book of Genesis. The description is reported by an ancestor of Noah, builder of the famous ark, Enochle, who recounts being told by Adam and Eve about the garden soon after they faced eviction from it. It's long been held by biblical scholars that Eden was the first gated community. Barbaric Australopithecans and other inferior hominids were denied entry. It may be that these brutes were early failed experiments by God himself. Even hobbits, cute and whimsical though they were, could not pass through Eden's gate, nor gain ingress by digging a tunnel beneath the hedgerow. Booby traps bristling with poison-dipped barbs would spring into the face of anyone foolish enough to try to breach the barrier surrounding the idyllic property. Spring! That was the sound of burning, paralyzing toxin being punched through the dermis of the foolhardy. Spring! It was the sound of defeat. Spring! That's the sound. A sound that was sure to be followed by seizures, lesions, and cardiac infarctions. How fitting, then, that this segment of wire, ornamented in the middle with a twisted double barb of pre-Bronze Age metal, extruded somehow before extrusion could have possibly developed, at least on this planet, greeted Trudy Brasnorkel with the exact sound Eden's hedgerow booby traps had made in their day so many millennia ago, at least five many scientists believe. Many biblical scholars, scientists, fascists, racists, and fans of eugenics agree that God would have insisted on protecting his crowning creation, the initial pure race of humans, preventing their potential pollution with the dirty blood of pre-sapient but well-hung interlopers. Further, they aver that God's method of securing Eden's purity would have been to festoon the perimeter with pointy hardware. Ample evidence exists to support this hypothesis. The famous Euphrates knot housed in the British Museum is now thought to be another sprig of defense from around Eden's garden with its precious fruit trees, magical birds, and cuddly mammals made specifically for the enjoyment of that venerable couple who at the beginning of time inaugurated today's white Christian pedigree. We all know 
that the tragic disobedience of What's-Her-Face, who was taken in by that snake-oil salesman-like serpent and tricked into eating from the tree of critical race theory, constituted abrogation of the lease, and God was well within his rights and most likely had no choice but to put all their belongings out on the curb. The item found at that dig that sunny Sunday in Afghanistan was a monumental discovery. Sadly, though, Brasnorkel and her grad school assistants, soon afterwards, were stricken with rickets. At that time, early in the 20th century, a diagnosis of rickets strickening was a death sentence. Ricketts was known to wipe out entire campuses of scholars, particularly those scholars foolish and flaky enough to pursue studies in the humanities. Was it a curse? The curse of Enoch. Were these academic perverts victims of their own disrespectful trespasses upon the territory to which only God holds the deed? We may never know the answer with any acute certainty, and perhaps we are not meant to. Some things are meant to remain mysteries. Some things are meant to remain super true. To this day, the only cure for rickets known to us modern humans is Dr. Elon Musk's musky muskegon muskelunge liniment, available over the internet exclusively on the Abracadabra Marketplace app. Please specify industrial or recreational strength. Next week, another super truth. Maybe the day it rained bananas. Or the fountain of perimenopause. Or maybe the devil's cucumber. Or maybe even ancient alien sluts. Tune in to find out. Until then, this has been the moment of truth. A good day. Jeffy, I have to go uh, home and take care of my preparation for the horrible procedure I'm having oh. tomorrow. Good luck, man. Break a leg. No, don't break anything. <laughs> uh, keep everything solid exactly. and unfractured. <laughs> everything, everything. It's best wishes, uh, prayers, and uh, thoughts. And <laughs> so until next week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, next week I'll be doing it from Michigan, I think. Oh, that's right. Until mm. your next moment of truth, live from Michigan. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. And Lindsay, remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And do we have any more responses to share with the listening audience? We do. This week's question from Hell. What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? So the last response, uh, I'm supposed to get some music here. Um, that's loud. That's alright. <laughs> so the last response on Facebook was the Trump Superstore. Yes. And our next response from George P says, "What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line?" George P says, "Female bodily autonomy." Oh, okay, that's something to advertise. Okay. Yeah, clap for that one. Yes. Um, Ray O says, there is no Minnesota. Stay in Illinois. <laughs> I don't think Minnesota and Illinois actually border each other, but okay. <laughs> I don't think so either. 
So what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? Michael H. says, this was a real sign on the California border to Oregon. Visit, but please don't stay. (laughs) The Oregon governor at the time, Tom McCall, is famous for saying, I urge them to come and come many, many times to enjoy the beauty of Oregon. But I also ask them, for heaven's sake, don't move here to live. <laughs> it didn't work, by the way. No. Not too many people are moving to Oregon. Any more? Yes. A couple more on Facebook. What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? Greg D says, Jello Pizza. Ugh. <laughs> and I like this one from Braden S. What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? That the hit single horny 98 by moose t versus hot and juicy available on cd at your local retailer <laughs> why do you like that one <laughs> it's just, it, it would be advertising one single on one cd at a local <laughs> retailer i think <laughs> it's funny hot. that is pretty funny <laughs> okay there are more on twitter do we do we do them now or? sure yeah let's just finish them up Okay, so there are quite a few. What are you advertising on the big highway billboard just across the state border? At Alan Singh says, no use. We are everywhere. All right. Okay. Uh, Paul Nice Good says, come see the home of the world's biggest moron. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that would be a way to make money without, like, having to leave your home. <laughs> sure, sure. I like that one. This, uh, so this week's question, again, is what are you advertising on the big highway billboard just across the state border? Hypocrite Reader says, Papal, Papal, I don't know if I Papal. know this word, indulgences. Hmm? Papal indulgences. As in the Pope. Uh, Anarchademic. Last year, last week's winner, the question from hell. Yes, last week's winner says that they would advertise on the billboard outside state lines. Communism will win. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you try to get a billboard company to put that on a sign. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought I just thought of this this billboard in that's pretty famous in Phoenix. Maybe you've heard of it. It has Trump's face in the middle of it. It has two nuclear explosions next to his face and then next to those are two money signs like that look a lot like swastikas wow. it's a really intense it's wow. right in the middle of downtown phoenix wow. on grand avenue so wow. i don't even know who put that up but it's been there for years now that's crazy yeah um so anyways that's one cool thing there i guess <laughs> uh at eat fart 69 posted a picture with the caption happiness we're all in it together and there's like a nuclear white family and an old car with the sun shining behind them. They're all smiling. Yeah, you Three can, of them are wearing hats. There's a dog. It's disturbing. You can see it at our Twitter feed. <laughs> at This Is Hell Radio. Yes. I saw that earlier this week. <laughs> and Chundercat, or at Megathrust Quake, says <laughs> their billboard advertisement across state lines would say everything is voluntary <laughs> all right okay um and johnny truant's death wish redux says their billboard would say turn around now <laughs> which is good i like that billboard <laughs> yeah and last the last billboard advertisement on the highway across the straight border 
from Ram Dobson. It would say barely legal abortions. <laughs> I really like barely <laughs> legal abortions. That's very scary, and I like it a lot. All right, so the ones that I liked the most were uh, I did like Jack B. saying a new drag show at my local library paid for in cryptocurrency. Uh, Mick C. saying guns, it's what for, it's what's for dinner. Uh, and uh, But I got to go with my favorite this week. It's the one that... Uh, Lindsay just read, and that's Ram D saying barely legal abortions would be what they would pu- be putting on a billboard at uh, just on the other side of the state line. So, Ram D, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. And all we need now is which piece of merchandise, uh, which piece of This Is Hell merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, which one you would like, and send us your mailing address, and we will get it in the mail post haste so congratulations Ram D on answering this week's question from hell what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line with your answer barely legal abortions for me it's a hypothetical in that if we had any sort of marketing budget I would definitely be advertising this is hell on a highway billboard but first I think we're going to aim a little bit lower and see if we can get an ad for this is hell on a bus stop bench as that has got to be cheaper right and I've already got my sights on the bus stop at the corner of Devon and Western. Thanks to everybody for uh, sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Thanks to this week's producers, Lindsay Gorey, Sebastian Vooper, and as always, Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Jeff for the Moment of Truth, Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History. Also thanks to Richard Norwood for coming in and filling in as a producer this week. Thanks to Theron Humiston, just because. And a get well soon to producer Dan Hill and his family, who this week tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, now, we don't know who's going to be on the show next week. We haven't still yet to uh, confirm any of our guests. But if you tune into the Patreon podcast on Friday morning, we will share who we have confirmed between now and then. Uh, but that all said, we will definitely have another installment of Seb's Soapbox. Producer Sebastian Vooper's discussion on history, another edition of the This Week in Rotten History from uh, Ronaldo Magaldi, of course, Jeff Dorchin in A Moment of Truth. But this time it's going to be live from Michigan. Talk to you on Patreon tomorrow at patreon.com slash this is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>